Before we hop into this episode, I just wanted to let you know that we're slapping a PG-13 label on this one. There's nothing super explicit going on here, but we will be talking about sexuality and romantic attraction. If you're listening along with kids and you aren't quite ready, or frankly in the mood, to have these conversations, maybe go check out some of our previous episodes and then come back to this one a little bit later. All right, let's dive in. Hey, it's yours truly, Dr. Kaylee Byers. Today, our producer Sean is taking us on a little adventure. Just stepping off the tram. He's in the land down under. Melbourne, Australia. On the beat of a story that has a couple twists and turns. And I'm on my way to the aquarium. Or maybe more accurately, slides and dives. All right, I'm just walking to the front of the aquarium now. At Sea Life Melbourne Aquarium, there's a particular tale he's looking into. And yes, that's a pun. <laughs> Good, are you and Liv? Yes. He's meeting up with Liv. Hi, Emily. And Emily to chat penguins. Hi, I'm Emily Thornton. I am a penguin keeper here at uh, Sea Life Melbourne Aquarium. Uh, I've been in the penguin department for about the last three or four years, uh, but I've been at Melbourne Sea Life for 17 years now. Sean's there to learn about gentoo penguins and their most active time of year. Mating season. So gentoo penguins uh, have a really elaborate courtship. What they basically do is um, they will uh, bow to each other, sing to each other, and eventually they get to a point where um, we give them nesting material, so we give them rocks, and they start to collect rocks together. And so they will collect it into a little pile and that's their nesting spot that they've chosen uh, within the area. They usually guard that spot. One penguin will stay there and they will swap that sort of guarding uh, job, I suppose you could call it. But during the last Gentoo season of love, a particular pairing caught the zookeeper's eyes. One day, uh, a couple of the, my old colleagues just noticed that two penguins in our colony, their names are Klaus and Jones. And Klaus and Jones are two males. They were starting to sing to each other, they were starting to bow to each other, and they were starting to show that courtship behaviour that's quite typical of Gen 2 penguins. Two male penguins pairing up and building a nest together. When we started putting nesting materials in, they gathered rocks together and put them together, which was really sweet. In truth, this pairing wasn't all that surprising. Emily and the other zookeepers have labeled Jones and Klaus as a will-they-won't-they couple for some time. And the reason that there are will-they-won't-they is because they have a bit of a love-hate relationship outside of breeding season. So they do often fight uh, and pick at each other. And at the moment, actually, one of my colleagues did say to me today that she's not sure if they're going to break up or get back together for this season that's coming up. They may very well end up still together again and still trying to breed. Same-sex penguin pairing? Super common. It's seen both in captivity and in the wild. But... Even outside of this one species, same-sex behavior is everywhere. Definitely with our king penguins, we've got two girls that um, bred last year that were flirting together last year and they both laid eggs. Just kind of picking at his feathers. Yeah, having a bit of a preen. Yeah. Uh, It's probably class. What are some of the other species where you've observed this kind of behavior or or heard of it? A lot of invertebrates do. I think maybe even albatrosses. Oh, yes, yes. I knew about albatross, definitely. Um, Nature is, uh, well, queer. Well, Uh, there is Jones just here. Oh, that's Jones. Hey, Jones. We're talking about you, buddy. (laughs) 
listening to Nice Genes, where we stick our beaks into incredible science stories and genomics, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, and part-time penguin matchmaker. In this episode, we're looking into an assumption that has prevailed in both society and science for hundreds of years. You've probably heard it yourself. Same-sex attraction has been labeled as unnatural. But if we actually look to nature and observe other animals, what you find is that the opposite is true. So the question we'll be asking this episode is, where do we see same-sex behavior in nature and where does it come from? And since we're a genomics podcast, we'll also be asking whether genomics plays a role. Or is that question leading us down a rabbit hole we best stay out of? This is a complex issue, and we're going to dive in with the folks who are looking at this question from multiple angles. And hey, it also happens to be LGBT History Month when we launch this episode. So let's get nerdy by going real deep into history. Evolutionary history. I'm probably hunched over because I think the microphone's a little low. Expert number one and my okay. co-host for this episode is Dr. Julia Monk. Julia Monk. Um, I'm an ecologist and evolutionary biologist, and I'm a postdoc at UC Berkeley. So, Julia, at the top of the episode, we got to hear about the story of Klaus and Jones, these two male Gen 2 penguins. I mean, how common is it for species to have same-sex pairings? It's actually incredibly common kind of across the animal kingdom. Uh, some colleagues and I found that a couple of studies have, have suggested that there's at least 1,500 recorded animal species that exhibit some type of same-sex behavior, and that's pretty likely an underestimate. So there's like 1,500 species where this has been recorded, likely an underestimate. What are some species that form same-sex pairings or that have had that recorded? There's a lot of different insects that engage in various types of same-sex pairings. Flower beetles are some of my favorites, but there's also quite a few species of birds. Albatrosses are pretty well known for very long-term stable same-sex pairings. You may have heard of that uh, children's book, Tango Makes Three. They were chinstrap penguins in the Central Park Zoo, I believe named Roy and Silo, who started forming a bond. They built a little nest together in their exhibit in the Central Park Zoo, and the keepers decided to give them an egg that had been abandoned by another pair of penguins to see if Roy and Silo would raise them on their own. And they did. They successfully hatched the egg and and raised Tango, the, the baby penguin, successfully to adulthood. Many primates are the subject of study for their engagement in same-sex behavior, cows, squids, pretty much any type of animal you can imagine. How do, how do you have all this information? Did you, like, did you go through and actually catalog all this for different species? So I just dove really deeply into the literature, people who had done this type of study on same-sex behavior. And in 1910, there was this expedition to Antarctica. It was called the Terra Nova Expedition, and there was this one zoologist and photographer named George Murray Levick. He was going to be the first researcher to study the Adelie penguin, and just like our Gentoo penguins from the top of the episode, he saw it all. 
a doughy penguin pairings between the same sex. He wrote it down in his notebook, but because of the explicit nature of his notes and by the standards of the day, he only shared it with a select few, and it was never published publicly. But we also have a couple of instances in natural history literature where people have noted other species from hundreds of years before, kind of in letters or in sort of footnotes that this type of same-sex pairing was observed, but those data were thrown out because it was either not considered relevant or seen as a mistake or deemed too unseemly to publish. This is a behavior that doesn't lead to the production of offspring, so it should be uh, sort of selected out by natural selection. So a lot of research had framed this behavior as what was termed a Darwinian paradox. And my colleagues and I really challenged the framing of this paradox and some of the underlying assumptions behind the study of the evolution of same-sex behavior in animals. So what, what, So, can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you sort of counter that Darwinian paradox? So this framing of a Darwinian paradox essentially asks how can same-sex behavior evolve and persist? What that's really asking is sort of why would animals engage in same-sex behavior or maybe it's a mistake, or there's just some sort of evolutionary constraints that make it so that natural selection can't weed out this clearly detrimental behavior. We really flip that question on its head. Instead of asking why would animals engage in same-sex behavior, we asked why not? Mm -hmm. Are there really costs to this behavior? And we challenged the underlying assumptions under some of this research and instead said, look, a lot of these studies are assuming that same-sex behavior did not exist in deep evolutionary time, and it evolved in all of these independent animal species over time. Instead, we asked, well, isn't it more likely that same-sex behavior was part of a more ancestral condition of early sexually reproducing species, and that given that it may not have particularly high costs, or it doesn't necessarily take away from their ability to produce offspring, there's little reason for natural selection to weed that behavior out, which would explain why it could persist in so many distantly related groups of animals to this day. What I love so much about how you're framing this is it, well, why wouldn't this thing persist if it still conveyed some form of benefit or or didn't detract, right? Like, why would we just assume that it is necessarily bad, right? Exactly. And that's really at the heart of what we were trying to illuminate. So really, we propose a hypothesis of ancestral indiscriminate mating when different sexes first arose in deep evolutionary history of animals, there wouldn't have been the ability to target very clearly because there wasn't a lot of differentiation between sexes. So instead, it seemed likely to us that a lot of these early sexually reproducing animals are just kind of looking for mates all over the place. And that's a lot of what we see with some echinoderms. Oh, echinoderms like uh, starfish, sea urchins, sand dollars, sea cucumbers, those, those kind of guys, right? Right, which are thought to be a little bit more similar to some of these early sexually reproducing animals, where there's some form of just releasing your gametes out into the world and hoping they encounter one another. There's not this clear targeting. Mating is kind of indiscriminate. And from there, we can get selection for different types of targeting, maybe some more different sex behavior, but that certainly doesn't preclude lots and lots of same-sex behavior. Yes. If I, I mean, can I snap into my mic? <laughs> I'll just do that. <laughs> All right. Whether we see the commonalities between people and animals either as blurry or as a clear line in the sand, 
I think it's time we bring in our next expert. And it's someone whose work can illuminate a question scientists have had for decades. So could you please introduce yourself to us? Sure. My name is Dr. Robbie Wido. I'm an assistant professor of sociology and data science at Purdue University and an assistant professor of medical and molecular genetics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Can you sort of explain to us what sociogenomics is? I think there's sort of two pieces that are really important to understand. The first is really easy. It's just the incorporation of genetic data into the study of disciplines like sociology or economics, traditionally social sciences. The second level is a little bit more nuanced. So sociogenomics, interestingly, is not about biology. Instead, We're trying to use this new, very well-powered, robust type of data to improve social science. So we're not really trying to learn about biology, but we're using genetic data as a tool to learn more about the social environment. Time to jump down a bit of a rabbit hole. There's this one term that cropped up in 1993. A geneticist named Dean Hamer and his fellow researchers published what they believed was some of the first evidence of a link between genetics and same-sex behavior. Sitting on the X chromosome was what they believed was an explanation for gay male sexuality, marker XQ28. It was published in a notable science journal, but some subsequent research called their findings into question. But it was too late. The cat was out of the bag, and the scientific community and presses went off the chain. One of the biggest debates of our time. Is being gay a choice, or is it in the gene? believe that being gay may be in our DNA. And one particular term popped to the front of papers and news bulletins. Based on the fact that, you know, your child has the gay gene. There is no gay gene. The gay gene. And since then, well, that term Um, stuck. So when did you first encounter the term gay gene and what has it meant to you throughout your life? So I was raised here in northern Indiana in a very conservative family and a very religious family. And I started wondering about my sexual identity all the way back in middle school. It happened to coincide with a class. It was a genetics course and um, put me on a path at a very early age to start wondering about how genetics might shape sexual identity. Genetic technology has come a long way since the 90s. And early in Dr. Wido's academic career, he and his colleagues wanted to put the age-old question to bed. Is there a gay gene? You know, it's pretty cool that I actually got to sort of answer that question that I started to form, you know, all the way back in middle and high school. Step one, get the data. So the two data sets that we used in this study are the UK Biobank and 23andMe. To do that, they had to apply for the data and let them know what they'd be using it for. All of their outcomes and their genetics. The biobank gave them about 500,000 individuals. And then with 23andMe, this is a topic that they were interested in collaborating on. Their consumers also are quite interested in these sort of outcomes that get at who we are and why we are, what we are. The biobank and 23andMe sends them the data. Dr. Wido's team looks at the data, and then they do something called a GWAS, 
A GWAS is a genome-wide association study. You get a bunch of people's genetic data together, and you essentially are scanning across all of the places in the genome that could potentially affect the outcome statistically. So you have your chromosomes, and inside of your chromosomes, you have your single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are the places in the genome where you might have an A or a T or a C or a G amino acid. And so you're looking at uh, when there is variation in one of those places, does it statistically affect the outcome? In this case, looking at everyone's genetics in relation to same-sex behavior. What you get out of it is this figure called a Manhattan plot. Sort of a big, fancy graph that once the numbers are crunched, looks kind of like the skyline of Manhattan. And so you can sort of visually see which places in the genome are the most highly associated with an outcome of interest. So the team kept crunching the data, continued on their study, but of course they also had to keep in mind the ethics of the outcomes they were looking for and how they would navigate this sensitive topic. We were thinking about the ethics at the beginning, and then um, we were really thinking about the ethics as we began to present the paper at different conferences, and we started to realize that this was going to be a, a generally high-interest topic um, that would want to come with a lot of cautions and precautions. Dr. Rito and the rest of the team flew to San Diego for the 2018 American Society of Human Genetics annual meeting, a big conference. Dr. Ben Neal, the head of the study, took to the stage and shared some of those preliminary studies. And, well... At that time, I think we didn't have all the data in, so we had just a GWAS and we had a few loci that seemed to be highly associated with the outcome. I think the gut initial reaction was just that the group felt like there's a team at our work institute who is working on this paper that has something to do with my identity and I didn't know anything about it. Critics of sociogenomics and particularly this study um, that think that this should be off limits because it could potentially cause more harm, then it could do good doing a study like this, especially if, you know, they might say we might not learn very much or there's not much we can do with these results. You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Julia Monk. We wanted to build this nest of genomic science nerds. So if you like nice genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Spread the love for science by sharing the show with a friend or a penguin pal. Okay, so when Dr. Weedo and his colleagues shared their early findings on evidence supporting genes that were associated with same-sex behavior, the room sort of stiffened. And a lot more questions were about to flood him and his colleagues from pretty much every angle. We tried to take every piece of feedback that we got under advisement, except for stop the study. I think it taught me how to do truly open science. 
The research team opened up the process, consulted with numerous groups to make sure that they were walking that tightrope of ethics while also furthering the understanding of same-sex behavior. It also exposed them in a way that you typically wouldn't expect in the realm of science. I had to talk about my own history and my sexual identity. So I remember giving presentations where I really highlighted, you know, sometimes painful stories from my own experience to show how I was thinking about the paper and how it played a role. And I think we really had all of our cards on the table. So it felt more like you were doing the science in front of an audience the entire time and listening to what they had to say and incorporating that into the science. Um, but then I really grew to love it. And so, you know, the lessons learned from this generally are, are the way that I do my science now. Especially when it comes to the potential existence or non-existence of a gay gene, what were some of the fears around how your findings would be used? Like, would if it was true, would people screen for the gene to avoid, like, birthing gay children? Or if it was purely, yeah, yeah, yeah. If it was purely environmental, would that reinforce people's belief in things like conversion therapy? Yeah, yeah. So this was a, a double-edged sword we knew we were walking from the beginning. I think this was, you know, you were sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't here. If you found a Mendelian gene locus, then people would start to think about CRISPR or embryo screening or things that really wouldn't work, but people might think um, would work. And if we found very little role for genetics, then we might have the conversion therapy people start to harp on, well, this means that conversion therapy can work. You've shared with us the process and then the big moment. What did your research find? So we performed a systematic analysis across the human genome and we revealed a small handful of locations that were clearly highly associated with whether a person has ever engaged in same-sex sexual behavior. All of those variants together are common in the population uh, and have very small effects. Uh, together, when you add up all of those effects, I think they explain less than 1% of the overall variance in the outcome. So clearly that underscores that there is no gay gene that determines or even has a strong effect on whether someone has same-sex sexual partners or has a diverse sexual identity. We also found that the genetic influences on same-sex sexual behavior are partly different between females and males, um, and that they also vary across societies, so location uh, and over time, measured by participant age. Um, and this to us suggests that there are societal and cultural norms that are shaping genetic effects on same-sex sexual behavior. So this is a nice socio-genomic finding that it's culture and the environment that are shaping even the expression of genes or, or the associations of genes with this outcome. Genetics and environment both influence sexual behavior just as they do for any other complex behavioral trait. This trait looks just like other complex behavioral traits for humans. Um, it will never be possible to uh, meaningfully predict someone's sexual behavior from their genes alone. 
What Dr. Weedo and the rest of the team found out put them at the intersection of science and society. They found both partial evidence of five particular genetic markers that were associated with same-sex behavior, but they also found that these associations are complex and that there's likely much more to discover about the role of genetics and same-sex attraction. Even more importantly, they found that when environmental and social factors are considered, that the role of genetics was less clear-cut. Dr. Weedo spent a lot of time and energy on how to try and shape a thoughtful conversation around this kind of research. So I wanted to ask him what's an important framework for discussing research like his with sensitivity and care. Clearly, you thought really carefully about how to approach studying like a really sensitive topic like same-sex behavior, but you stated before that it's sort of like any other complex behavioral trait, and there's a way in which separating out same-sex behavior can be a little bit myopic as well. So how do you think about studying other types of sexuality or opposite sex attraction, or what are some next steps in which we could consider sexual behavior or sexuality more holistically? You know, some of the results of the, of the paper really indicate that sexuality and sexual behavior may be one of the very most diverse outcomes out there in the world. I don't think there's a quicker changing demographic variable than sexuality and sexual identity. Things are changing really quickly in terms of acceptance of diverse sexual identities and pushback from governing bodies at state and federal levels and how young people feel and how different that it is from how older people feel. So I think I'd want to see a very diverse set of places and ages and outcomes. And I think that would begin to build the baseline for a really good understanding of what this outcome is and, and how it changes and how complicated it is. And then, you know, you have to have a game plan for what happens when the data might be used nefariously. One example is that a company called Gene Plaza, shortly after the paper was used, used the summary statistics from the paper to essentially create a, a little app called the How Gay Are You app. And so what they were doing is they were having you upload your own genetic data and then putting you on a threshold compared to our data to tell you how gay you were. Now, this is something scientifically invalid for many mm. different reasons. We wrote to them a very strongly worded letter that explained the problems with the science and why we were urging them to take it down immediately. And they took it down. How does that make you think about what we can say based on these genetic data, if it's so clear that what we know about people's behavior or attraction or outcomes is so influenced by the society in which they're able to share that? How, do, how does that change a little bit about how you might think about doing this type of genetic research? So that's the question I, I want to answer, right? Um, I want to understand better how social processes and laws and locations change expression of, of, of sexual behavior. And I want to use genetic data to do that because you can see the trends so clearly in this well-powered type of data. I think it provides a really clearly highlight how society and the environment shapes diverse sexual expression. But do you not think that that can also just mean that we didn't have quality data before about the association between the genes and the expression because people were not honest about 
their sexual behaviors. But but that's also an interesting social outcome. But that's part of the sociology of the question as well. I'm proposing that we could have done this GWAS in 1910, um, but the newer GWAS in California in 2040 would the outcome would actually be same-sex sexual behavior in a more open to diverse sexual identity state. And the old outcome would be same-sex sexual behavior in a time when diverse sexuality was not as supported and people were more afraid to report how they engaged in same-sex sexual behavior. Those would be the full names of the outcomes that we'd, we'd be studying. And so I think at some point we're going to have so much genetic data that we're going to be able to start adding things to the outcomes. We're going to start to see the laws around privacy of genetic data change, which is, you know, I think scary to a lot of people, myself maybe potentially included. But I don't think it's out of the question that we will be able to tie these deeply phenotyped or even interviews to genetic data. <laughs> Interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Wido. It was a delight chatting with you about this paper and all your work. Thank you. Yeah, it was great to be on the show. Thanks so much. So, Julia, we just had this conversation with Dr. Wido, and I wanted to ask you, I mean, anything come up for you? Any reflections you had following that conversation? Yeah. I mean, it was so interesting to hear about how they were really able to debunk this notion of there being a gay gene. And there's clearly so many more both genetic and environmental factors that are at play in determining the expression of same-sex behavior in humans as well as in animals. But I think I continue to really struggle with how we reconcile these genetic factors with a lot of the societal baggage that we still have not completely grappled with. I think we have even in here, like queer is natural, but you do not need nature to be queer <laughs> to justify that in people. Because I feel like that's something that we get stuck on uh, as people a lot to be like, well, look though, but it's an animal. So then th now it's okay. It's like, no, it's just, it is, it is okay in all systems. <laughs> you don't exactly. need one to justify the other. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, a tension that I'm always trying to think about deeply and lean into because on the one hand you know i have colleagues who do biology education research who have shown throughout their studies that highlighting this type of what could be termed quote unquote queer behavior in nature really increases senses of belonging of queer and trans students in the classroom so i don't want to diminish the importance of of seeing oneself in the natural world but at the same time as you said we don't need the natural world to be presented in terms of queerness or we don't need to convince people that there's a biological basis to either queer or trans identities in order to have those identities be valid, worthy of respect, and protected from discrimination. It's hard to know a lot about what attraction people experience, especially historically when it's been so unsafe for people to express that for so long. Mm -hmm. You know, just to give an example for my life, I came out to my mom the day that same-sex marriage was legalized because that social context played a huge role in how much I felt safe and comfortable being open about my own sexuality. Mm. So I'm still really interested in thinking through how we can disentangle any genetic factors that influence 
people's same-sex behavior or attraction, but also how much mm -hmm. we feel safe expressing that and how much we can know about whether people or animals engage in that behavior if social contexts aren't really open to looking into that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's Before we take off, we wanted to come back to our little love story that kicked us off. From Silaf, Melbourne. Kaylee's talking about Jones and Klaus, of course. Talking to you about the penguins. When we recorded this episode, that colorful and musical mating season was just about to begin. Um, a few couples have broken up. We followed up with Emily Thornton, their lovely keeper, to see if the will-they-won't-they they relationship was yeah. off icy terms. <laughs> Very much days of our lives. And nested into a lovely male gentoo romance once again. So we started putting in nesting material, which includes a platform and some nest rings and then some rocks. Uh, maybe a month or two ago, they were uh, fighting a lot and sort of picking at each other. And uh, they were also wandering off with uh, other, other penguins as well uh, and doing the sort of the breeding behaviours like bowing to other penguins and things like that. But this, uh, they have now decided that they actually are in love still and so they're bowing to each other, they're giving each other rocks, they have got their own nest and they are again one of our best collectors uh, of rocks so they've been doing really well. Aww, love finds a way. <laughs> Our guest for today was Dr. Robbie Wido, Assistant Professor of Sociology and Data Science at Purdue University and Research Affiliate at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Special thanks to Emily Thornton of Sea Life Melbourne for letting us pop in and visit their handsome Gentoo penguins. And of course, a big thanks to Jones and Klaus for letting us into their nest. And last but not least, my excellent co-host, Dr. Julia Monk. Thank you for joining me today. It was a blast. finishing us off for today? Of course not. You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to at GenomeBC. And we also have learn-along sheets added to the show description. Join us next time where we confront the assumptions made around weight and our physical health. Any doctor will just matter-of-factly recommend we'll lose some weight. The science around weight and health is poor and highly tainted and not at all proving what we all assume to be true. And like then I just fell down the rabbit hole of it. Thanks for listening. We'll slide back into your feed soon with an episode to make you pen grin. 